Recovery Elevator, episode 93. You know, I feel like I started seeing those things, but I was covering them up still with alcohol and drugs, and I was just, you know, not wanting to realize that the alcohol and drugs had taken over my life. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator podcast. My name is Paul. Thank you so much for joining us. According to the Recovery Elevator sobriety tracker on my phone, I have been sober for 26 months and seven days. On today's podcast, we've got Stephanie. She's 33 years old, from Alabama, and she works at a treatment facility. Her sobriety date is December 31st, 2011. Yep, I said that correct. Not January 1st, 2012. She actually got sober the day before New Year's. Good on her. Don't forget to email us your sober selfies, info at recoveryelevator.com. Be proud. Let's shred the shame. And before we get to our topic today, let's learn about Cafe RE. Before I got sober, I felt alone. It felt like I was the only one in the whole world who found it extremely difficult to stop drinking once I had started. With Cafe RE, I now know I'm not alone. In fact, there are so many people all around this world just like me. In Cafe RE, for $12 a month, I get access to a private, unsearchable Facebook group where I can connect with other like-minded individuals, meet with them face-to-face in several weekly live webinars and meetings, I can get paired with an accountability partner who has a similar sobriety date as mine, I can attend in-person meetups and attend exclusive sober trips to places like Costa Rica. If there's one thing I've learned in sobriety, it's that I can't do this alone. Go to recoveryelevator.com and use the promo code ELEVATOR for your first month free. Again, use the promo code ELEVATOR when signing up for your first month free. The topic for today is why do some go down the path to alcoholism faster than others? In regards to drinking, why do the wheels come off for some a lot faster than others? I've heard stories of people becoming alcoholic after the very first drink. Others, it's a lifelong, slow, steady decline. A painful, slow and steady decline, that is. One reason we may have heard is, well, that person has an addictive personality. One example could be, well, Tina has an addictive personality because she uses meth and she's addicted to crack. And one conversation that's probably never taken place in a human resources office is, well, Tom's missed 37 consecutive days due to his addictive personality, but we can't fire him because of that. Well, here it is. There's no such thing as an addictive personality. It just doesn't exist. In fact, scientists have searched high and low. I myself have searched high and low for the addiction gene. There is no addiction gene. I wish there was. In fact, it would make things a lot easier. We wouldn't still be having the debate, is alcoholism addiction a disease? Especially after in 1956, the American Medical Association classified alcoholism and addiction as disease. We wouldn't still be having that debate. It would be nice to find the addiction gene, but it doesn't exist. Saying that somebody has an addictive personality is a little like saying someone's double-jointed. There's no such thing. Now, scientists have found that the genetic makeup of a person, that combined with the environmental factors that that person lives in, have a huge outcome determining if that person becomes addicted to alcohol or not. Now, I've somewhat had a shift of thinking in the last 40 to 50 episodes doing this podcast. My thinking now is that alcohol is one of the most addictive drugs in the world. It might be that simple, and that everybody would become an alcoholic if they drink. You might be saying to yourself, wait a second, there's way too many normal drinkers out there. That's true, there are. However, if we all live to be 500 years old, everybody would become an alcoholic if we drank. The fact is, people drink more and more. If you try to argue with me on that, I'll take you back to the point when you didn't drink. So for myself, the wheels came off right around age 21, 22, and I made the progression into my disease alcoholism. For normal drinkers, like my brother, he might become an alcoholic at age 412. 
So with his genetic makeup, he will become addicted to alcohol at a way later time frame. We're talking the two, three, four hundred years later mark. So in reality, there is no answer to determine why and when people would descend down that road with alcohol. But there's this thing called Ocam Razor's logic. This states that usually the simplest logic is usually the most likely correct one. And here's what I found to be true. Alcohol is an extremely addictive drug. This coupled with environmental factors such as finances, where we live, who we hang out with, how hard life is in general, what our family opinion is on ourselves, what religion we're part of. Did we enter Greek life in college? How many Mad Men episodes have we seen? Did we experience childhood trauma? Was our parents' relationship healthy? There's so many environmental factors that can speed up and slow down this process. But those factors, coupled with our genetic makeup, are really the determining factors to tell you when the wheels are going to start flying off. One thing that I don't like about the addictive personality argument, for number one, it doesn't exist, is the fact that it kind of puts a buffer between the problem and what's really happening. Again, back to Tina, her meth and crack abuse can't be helped because she just has an addictive personality. That's it. But if this was a case, this would be a personality flaw and would be incurable. Then why do so many people recover from alcoholism? Now, there are some personality traits that are prevalent among alcoholics. And I want to bring up a concept that I find fascinating that I heard at the end of a Radiolab podcast episode called The Fix. That is that people who are prone to addiction, the people that have enhanced pleasure receptors, are the ones that were meant to evolve. Yeah, ones that walked further to find food, to build fire, to find a mate. We're talking thousands and thousands of years ago. Those are the ones that were meant to evolve. My genetic makeup 5,000 years ago did me a huge solid. Right around age 23, 24, man, that sucked. But here's some personality traits, according to Cher Littlefield, that alcoholics possess. And if you ask me, these five personality traits are essential if you would like to evolve in this place called planet Earth. The first one is involvement. Hey, can I come, guys? The second one, getting outside of your comfort zone, openness to new experiences. Third one will be conscientiousness. Yep, that's a woolly mammoth approaching. Let's get the F out of here. Fourth one, extroversion. Another one will be agreeableness. That would mean let's talk it out instead of using our battle axes. Another one is neuroticism. To survive the ice age, I'm guessing a little bit of neuroticism was necessary. Now, if I were to go down a list and check each one of those character traits that I just mentioned, yep, I would demonstrate a little bit of all of those. Now, there are also some character traits, some personality traits that have been linked to people who have been successful in recovery. These are experience-seeking, decisiveness, impulsiveness, and non-conformity. The non-conformity one thing would be watching Mad Men episodes and saying, wait a second, this can't be the norm. People will die if they drink this much alcohol. So again, there is no explicable defect in our personalities. We are not weak people. This is not a moral failing. Really, just like Ocam Razor's principle, alcohol is a highly addictive drug. It could be that simple, and it usually is. So now let's hear from our interviewee, Stephanie. Stephanie, how are you? I'm great. How are you doing? Fantastic. Thanks for asking. Stephanie, let's get right into this. How long have you been sober? Um, a little over four years. This New Year's Eve will be five years. Nice. So you partied your ass off on New Year's, I imagine, on the 1st of Jan. Wait, did I hear that right? You, The 31st, you got sober New Year's Eve, not the 1st? Yeah, New Year's Eve. So, Well, actually, I went to treatment on the 30th, but I was still intoxicated on the 30th. So my, my actual clean and sober date is on New Year's Eve. Okay. Yeah, no, that, that, that makes sense. 
well, that's your guaranteed sobriety by the new year then. Yeah, that's that's awesome. And that was five years ago, is that what you said? Yes, this new year should be five years. So it's crazy. It doesn't seem like it, but... I'm going to throw the order off right now. Did you have a pink cloud? Yes, for a long time. I still have them, though. <laughs> wait, wait, you, you still have them? Like occasionally we got like a 30% chance of a pink cloud just rolling in today? Or is, it, is that what it's like? Yeah. Well, I try to just make my own pink cloud every day as much as I can because I just feel like... But there's been times, yes, that I've gotten, you know not so much pink cloud days but I mean I try to look at the positive in every day and but the pink cloud I mean you definitely do have that in the beginning I did I mean and it's not the same as it is now but I still feel like you know there's days where I'm like Stephanie you need to be extremely grateful for what you have today you know versus because I work in the same treatment facility that I went to treatment and so I'm reminded every day of where I could be if I wasn't sober so, Did you say you work in a treatment facility right now? Yes, I work at Bradford Health Services, which is the same treatment facility that I went to. Nice. Did you just yeah. roll right on through? Like you met, you got thirty days or sixty or ninety, and you're like, well, you know, staff, let's just uh, let's keep you on staff. No, it's a really strange. It's crazy that I ended up there because after I left treatment, I mean, I I went to a halfway house. I was I was in treatment for 15 days, which is definitely not long enough, but I didn't have insurance and, you know, couldn't stay any longer than that. And so I went to a halfway house and then I was there for, I think, five months and then found a position at at a hospital where I was doing just little things that I knew I wasn't going to be doing forever, but I was trying to get back on my feet. And well, I had moved to my mom's house from the halfway house. I moved back in with her. Um, for several months and then when I applied and got this position at the hospital in Birmingham that's when I, I moved that weekend and started working that next Monday and got a and got an apartment just a little studio apartment and then I worked at a different hospital like two years later for a year and a half or so and then I mean I just started at Bradford this November 6th will be a year that I've been at Bradford I know I just bounced around but I just I knew I wanted to be working in the recovery Sure. Center. Yeah. So I just went ahead and did it. I took a pay cut and went for it. <laughs> but now I'm like basically back to where I was. So I, I'm, I'm grateful. I bet a lot of people out there who are in recovery, they, they seek out a place where they can be open in the workplace about their recovery. How does that feel when you walk around and your background is almost an asset instead of a liability, which really should never should be a liability, but it's definitely an asset where you work. I bet that's pretty cool, right? Yes, it, it is. And that's like one of my main, something that keeps me going all the time, because when, when I can walk around and not have to worry about where, you know, at my previous job, it's like, do I tell this person if they ask me, why do why do you not drink? Or do you want this if we go to a Christmas party? Do you want this drink? No, you know, and now it's like, we talk about it. Like we go out, I was out in the gazebo today and we were just chit-chatting about, you know, some of the other people. Actually, one guy that I went to I intensive outpatient with, he works there and it's just, it's so freeing. It's just like, if I'm having a bad day, I don't have to hide it. Like everybody knows they can read my face anyways, but you know, it's just like, it's just neat though to be able to, to do that every day and to be able to talk to the patient. Like, yes, I'm in recovery, you know, and they, it's helpful. You're right. It's an asset instead of a liability. And I, I do greatly enjoy that. 
Yeah, and Stephanie, we've gotten way ahead of ourselves, and I take full blame for that. My first question after the sober question was the pink cloud. I just reminded me, I was like, five years of sobriety is I told somebody the other day that, you know, for me, like day 712 was was harder than like day 37 for some reason. And that's because my pink cloud is long gone, but I love what you said about when you wake up, you kind of have a choice. Like, well, is a pink cloud coming today? Well, I'm going to decide it's going to be there. But Stephanie, before we get any further, let's hear more about you. Maybe tell us a little bit of background about yourself, where you're from, what you do for a living. You know what? Let's skip that question because you work at the Bradford Treatment Center. How old are you? Do um, you have a family? And what do you like to do for fun, Stephanie? I'm 33 years old, turned 33 in September. And so I'm from a really super small town called Arab, Alabama. And it's so tiny, so which that just made drinking and partying much easier. It's like that's all anybody ever did. Well, that's what I used to tell myself. And sure. I was raised in a very loving family. I mean, both my parents have always been supportive and been there for me, you know, and I, went, I grew up with, well, my parents got divorced when I was three. So long story short, I, I lived with my mother. Then I moved in with my dad when I was about 10 and then stayed with him. I moved out on my own when I was 17 after I graduated. I love to run and a kayak as much as I can. I haven't done as much as that, of that as I like. And spend time with my family, friends that are actually real friends these days. And I just, I really like being outside, outdoors. Anything outdoors, I would, I'm happy with. So really anything. I, I can, just, I enjoy anything now, which is so fun. So. Cool. You, you, you like a game of cornhole and crocheting. And making a garden with uh, with broccoli, pretty much, right? Just all the above. Just you like everything. Yes. Man, yeah, uh, you're you're just like calm and cool as a cucumber. I love it. And you were like Montana with the outdoor stuff. I know what you mean there. I try to get outside as much as I can. Now let's back it up like five to ten years ago. So age twenty one or 25 or 26, that's Stephanie. When did you realize or start to be more thoughtful? Like, hey, wait a second, I might have a drinking problem. I know when I took my first drink that I can remember was like in my ninth grade summer. And of course, at that time, I didn't think I had a drinking problem. But looking back now, I know, I mean, I was at the beach with my cousin and his friends, which he's like my brother and all his friends, they were all older. And I drank everything under the sun, jello shots, Jack Daniels, you know, but by all these things, vodka. And I just love that I didn't care what was going on and that I just was relaxed and having a good old time, you know, but then, then it just led to like, I was, you know, drinking on the weekends, like in a hayfield or whatever with kegs of beer and jamming out to loud music. Like I said, I lived in a small town, so that was just, we were easily entertained, say the least, which I guess I still am, but not in that same way. But I, I remember going to work. I was working at a department store, and I was, I guess, maybe 19 or 20, and I loved that job. And I had just gotten promoted not not long before this happened, but into assistant manager, and my, my manager was great. But I remember I went into work at, like, 9 o'clock or 10 o'clock that morning, and I still reeked of alcohol because I had gone to, uh, like, a college town that had hang out with some people that, it was the best friend of mine that went down there, and I went down there, and we spent the night and got up. We don't even, we probably didn't even go to sleep, but I still reeked of alcohol, and my boss came up to me and was like, 
I think you need to go home. Like, you, you need to go home for the day. You, you smell like alcohol. Have you been drinking today? I was like, no. But, I mean, I don't know if it was because I was smaller and I just drank so much and I healed in my body or what. I don't know. So, she sent me home, and I was like, you know, maybe... <laughs> Maybe I do have a problem because I have been drinking, you know, every other night at that point instead of every weekend, you know. But then when it went to, like, started taking opiates to get through hangovers and things like that, then I got my first DUI when I was 20. So still, that was a little bit like, oh, I'm okay, you know. And I was also prescribed Clonopin by a doctor at that time, which I don't, I don't take any of that now and blood pressure medicine, that's all. But, you know, I feel like I started seeing those things, but I was covering them up with alcohol and drugs and I was just you know not wanting to realize that the alcohol and drugs had taken over my life so I was I guess probably around I guess probably around 21 or 2 I was dating this guy that you know he told me he had his he had family issues I felt sorry for him and you know went into that whole trap and he drank and used and so I lived with him then I got engaged to him and he was angry abusive he was just like shut out I completely shut out my family friends. I quit my job. I was doing my student teaching at the time. I quit that. I was like all the way to the end that I just stopped going because at that point, the only way I thought I could escape reality and his emotional and or in my emotional outbursts and physical outbursts was to drink or swallow a pill. And so I kept, I left him a couple of times and moved back in with my dad and I always went back though. But then in 2011, uh, Memorial Day weekend, I had, I ended up in the hospital with pancreatitis. Okay. Um, I don't know. To get that, and that's due to drinking, right? Yes. I, I interviewed another gentleman on this podcast named Buddy, and he he got pancreatitis, and the doctor gave him a 50-50 chance of living, and I think he said like a month later he was drinking. Is that something similar to you, the, the pancreatitis was caused by the alcohol? Yes, and, and see, I didn't know what in the world it was, but it was it felt like I was, I thought I was dying. I did not know what was going on, but I had lost so much weight, and still didn't even know that I had lost weight and all this stuff. So when that happened and I went to the hospital and they said what it was, they did basically the same thing. They're like, if you drink again, the doctor said if I drank again, I would die. And they had thought about, I hadn't been talking to my parents much at all before this all happened, but of course they showed up at the hospital and supportive and they were, they had no idea. They had gotten that bad. And so I was in the hospital for 11 days. And, and so once I got out, because they even talked about like a liver transplant, you know, and, all this stuff going to this huge hospital in Birmingham to get me checked out. And, and somehow, miraculously, I mean, God, I was okay, you know, and I went, but I went back to my mom's house and stayed with her for about six months. I didn't have any contact with, with the guy. And I didn't drink or use or anything, but I also wasn't doing any kind of recovery-related stuff. I hadn't gone to a meeting or anything like that. In fact, my mom's neighbor bought me a, an AA book, and she's like, this is an Alcoholics Anonymous book. You know, it's a big book. And I'm like, now it's like my Bible. But I looked at it like, Are you crazy? Like, what is this? I'm not an alcoholic. I still was not thinking that way. But in the back, very back of my mind, I was. But it was like, I just knew in my head I couldn't drink at that time. But I go to the beach with just my mom and I, you know, six months after the hospital, and nobody around it, she had gone up to the room to take a shower. I told her I was going to charge my phone and walked up straight up to the bar. And I asked the bartender for a shot of Jägermeister. And he, I mean, I, the Jägermeister wasn't even out on the counter or, you know, in the back. 
he pulled it out of the cooler. So I'm like, why did, yeah, but that's where your alcoholic mind and the addictive mind, it's like it just completely, your addiction or alcoholism can take over in just that quick. And my mom came down and she was completely so disappointed. And I was too. And a couple months later, my drinking just spiraled wait, wait. out of Hang tight. I want to ask a question what you just said. So when you were on the beach, did you have any intention, or like in the back of the mind, walking down to the beach that you might drink? No. I mean, when I had, it, for, for a split second while we were laying by the pool, I was like, you know, that'd be kind of cool to have like one or two drinks, you know. Even though I knew, I was like, I know I can't drink that little because my pancreatitis, like, flare up or whatever. I didn't know how that would actually happen, but I just kept trying to justify it and tell myself that. But then it was like, I'm just going to do it. You know, it was like that fast. Yeah, that's and, and that's what I want you to expand upon because it sounds like your addiction, which me, it used to lie to me in my own voice, my addiction just instantly would take over. And before I know it, I'm like, oh my God, I'm drinking. What, is it something like that? Yes, because that one shot that I thought I was going to have turned into like several shots to the point where I didn't know my mom was standing behind me, you know, and, it, and I thought, oh, I can totally fool her. You know, I still at that point thought I could fool people. Yeah, and, moms have superpowers. No way. Yeah, I know. So, yeah, it just, it, it, I feel like if I didn't put myself in those situations, well, that wasn't even a situation, though, where I would say is a, a situation not to put yourself in because, I mean, you're with family or at the beach, but it's just now I look at it as if I'm not, like, armored up with my AA meetings and my prayer meditation and I'm not in that frame of mind. It's still, there's a possibility it could happen. I, I should never tell myself that it can't. Yeah, and looking back, you said, yeah, I didn't really think I was an alcoholic. I just didn't drink because the doctor said I had pancreatitis, not because I'm an alcoholic. It were the signs there. When you're looking back, you're like, oh, my God, Stephanie, yeah, I totally was an alcoholic. Yeah, even at that time, I mean, I, I would let thought pass, you know, come and, come and go quickly. I mean, I would just, I was still letting it come and go. But I think I realized really when, when I started blacking out and, you know, because like I said, my drinking got spiraled out of control after the beach trip. And then I had changed it back in the emergency room again. I told him my car this time, though, with that same guy, you know, came around. Because he would drink some you with me. So I would, of course, you know, go find him to do that with. And after I did that, then I told him my car and wound up in the hospital. We left that morning. Literally, I went to the liquor store that morning. After I had news, I knew that I had a total car, a possible I didn't know if I had a DUI or not because I knew the ambulance took me there and, of course, drew blood, so I didn't know how that was going to work out. But then it wasn't that long after that. I just I couldn't hide it. I had moved back home. I couldn't hide it from my parents. You know, I knew I needed help and searched online was about recovery centers, asked some people on Facebook that I knew had gone, like, what it was like. Still was hesitant about going, but in the middle of a blackout, because, I mean, I never used to blackout, but at, in the end, right before I went, my mom showed up and I was, like completely passed out sitting straight up on the couch in the middle of the day and she's like get your shoes on we're going you know and I knew I just needed that extra like get your ass get your shit together it did take that long to know okay I need this and and so on December 30th 2011 your mom took you to that that treatment center yes my mom and dad both went with me went to Bradford Health Services and I'm not going to say it was easy. It wasn't. I mean, I had a seizure there because I was coming off of the benzo then, the alcohol. And I didn't tell the truth, of course, about how much I had used, you know, when I got there, uh, which is what I always tell patients now. I'm like, please do not lie because they have to medicate you correctly. (laughs) Do you throw (laughs) your own personal anecdote in there? Like, yeah, you know, I lied and then I had this really bad seizure. So just take it from me. 
<laughs> yeah, actually, I have said that before. Sometimes it comes out because I just, <laughs> it was terrible. But because, you know, then, of course, I'm at the hospital in the in the emergency room and they're just looking at me like she's a drug addict. You know, like I know that wasn't just my insecurities popping out. It was the truth because they were just like, she's just having a seizure coming off these qualms in. And finally, that was that was in the control. Went back, got got back into the groups and everything at Bradford. And I knew, I, I, I for the first time, I actually felt comfort, like ease and comfort where I didn't have to worry about was I going to go back to that crazy relationship or was I going to go back to that pill or that drink or, you know, the insanity of the fact that I had quit my job, a job, my student teaching, total my car, but, you know, and I related to everything they were saying in these groups. So I just knew, I was like, well, I really am. I mean, every alcoholic story in that big book I related to. So I was like, you know, God really has answered my prayers. At this point, I knew I was in the right place. Do you think you could have gotten sober without rehab? For me, I don't think I could. I don't think so. Because I I had to get, I had to be removed from the situation, completely removed from that town. Because, I, I mean, I had tried moving an hour away from there. I tried I had tried little things here and there, and I just don't think I could because I didn't know how to. I didn't know how to cope with things. You know, you learn coping mechanisms and the tools for. I didn't know that there was a whole program um, to show you, you know, lay out the steps and ways to work the steps. I know people can do it. It is possible. I just know I couldn't. I couldn't have done it. And it's it's different for everybody, and that's. That's great that you, if you if you can go and, and insurance can cover it, and even if insurance doesn't cover it, there's a lot at stake. So I think it's really cool you went. And it sounds like I heard you get your big book. It's like your Bible now. That is that a program that you are using right now to stay sober? The the twelve steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. Yes. When I first started out, I didn't know if I should do Narcotics Anonymous or Alcoholics Anonymous, but I did definitely relate more to the Alcoholics Anonymous book and that program and. I found a sponsor, and my first sponsor is not my sponsor now. I've had two, but I've had this sponsor for four years now. I mean, or four and a half. I mean, really, almost. I only had that first sponsor for a few months, and then I've had her ever since. And we went through the steps, and you know, you go through a few of the steps in treatment, but to continue on and do like your four step and get all that stuff out, that's where you actually have to tell your bad stuff and you know do all that so that I thought was so bad but it's really not that bad and it was just good to get it out on paper and tell her all those things so I felt that was necessary for me um, but everybody is different now looking back before you went to the treatment center can you pinpoint one rock bottom moment or was it like an amalgamation of all of them you're just sick and tired of being sick and tired I know that after totaling my car and trying to hide it still trying to, like, I didn't have a car, so my dad, I would try to use his car, try to tell him I'd go to the grocery store for him, you know, and I'm like, I'm a, I'm an adult at this point, and I'm actually like, you know, 16 years old, and I was thinking, like, I would go buy half a pint of vodka and go to the grocery store for him, but I would like, buy, or go to the grocery store, write the check over, and then go to the liquor store next door with the cash that they gave me from the check, and I would put the vodka in my purse, you know, and then, but I would buy only half a pint to, like, justify it. And then I'd go back to the store, like, two hours later to get another half pint. Then I started drinking in the morning, and I knew when I started drinking at 6 a.m. that something was not right. Like, 
and to the point where it was just like that vicious cycle of insanity. I was like, why do why can I not just stop this? Finally, I just knew something had to change. You, you mentioned the vicious cycle of insanity, and you just mentioned you bought a half a pint, and then two hours later you went and bought another half a pint. And that, that's basically insanity because the same thing happens over and over. And I remember doing that many times. I'm sure the guy at the liquor store, he's like, he's like, dude, Paul, you're going to be here in three hours. Like, just get the handle, bro. I'm like, no, no I'm good. Like, I'm just going to stop here. And then, like, and then I'd show up two hours later like, oh, oh hey, Troy, you, you were right. He's like, well, damn it, dude. Like, you shouldn't have driven. Yeah. It's like every time. Like, why? I don't know. The whole, the whole, the whole beast, this disease is baffling. And you've got five years of sobriety. That is amazing. Now, have there been any close calls within those five years? Actually, no. I mean, I, I truly believe when they say that, you know, that the symptoms will be removed. And it's, that's part of something said in the book, too. But I've not had the want. Or any kind of, I, I'm sure there was cravings in the beginning that maybe, or what I thought might have been, you know, the thought, not cravings, but like the thought of, I wonder what it would be like if I drank. But I don't really remember that because I think, I really think at that point, and when I look back, or if I have ever thought about, oh, those people are having fun, you know, drinking and going out or having a few drinks at dinner. I mean, if I've ever thought that immediately, it's like, oh my God, no, I can't have just one drink. I know I can't. It's not possible for me to just drink one. Yeah, Stephanie, we got something in common because, yeah, I also can't have one. Just just can't do it. Yeah, one is too many and a <laughs> thousand is not enough. It's the darndest thing. Now, can you think of something in the last five years of sobriety that happened? You know, when life happens, and it doesn't happen to us, it just happens. But could you think of something that happened to you in the last five years that normally, when that had have happened to you before, when you were drinking, that you definitely would have drank over? God, I jumbled that question up, but you get the point. Yeah, it actually, when I, before I went to Brad, before I started working at Bradford, I was working at another place that, and, and actually when I did... The pod, I mean, yeah, the podcast, the share podcast with Omar, I said something about this, and it was the first time I said it out loud. And I, but I quit my job. Like I quit that. I did that in sobriety. That's stupid, you know. But I don't know. I would, if I would have done it the correct way, I would have just turned in my two week notice and not just been like, screw this. But I mean, I would have drank over that in the past. I would have been like, oh my gosh, I don't, what am I going to do? I have a home that I have to pay my mortgage, you know, and. Because in the past, if I quit, I would have been like, well, I'm just going to move back home. I'm just rent. I've just been paying rent. But I own my house and I have, you know, to do, have bills to pay. So, yeah, then I would have. But the craziest thing was during that during that time, of, uh, there was only like a couple months that I wasn't working. Not even the whole two months, probably, but it felt like an eternity. And I threw myself into actually putting my story out there because I guess I had all this time on my hands. And that's how I ended up, you know, finding the whole, the share podcast, the things like that and telling, and then I sent my story to Addiction Unscripted and now I sometimes write for them and, you know, send in things. One, they published one today that I had sent in a couple months ago. So it's a God thing that we're talking tonight because it's like, I mean, because I'm also on the fence of taking another position at where I'm at. And it's like full circle, a complete year when the exact same thing happened last year. Does that make sense? But in a different way. Sure. Because I have just started at Bradford and I just shared my story. It's just, it's very neat, I think. So, how God works. Yeah. Seriously. It's, it's, it is neat how we get put in touch with people across the universe who are, who are like-minded individuals. And kind of what we were talking about earlier, I know there are people listening right now that are thinking, they're saying to themselves, no way, I'm nothing like Stephanie because... 
when I quit a job or I get dismissed from a job, I drink. Can you tell listeners, Stephanie, that when life happens, just like the shit taco is fed to us, that we don't have to drink, that feeling goes away? Is that a possibility? Yes, it is. We, you know, we can, it's not going to make it any better. And I feel like, you know, getting out there, helping others, getting our minds off of us, off of ourselves and doing something selfless. And if they don't, you know, if a person doesn't attend meetings, then maybe just go to a homeless shelter or, I mean, even if it's just go next door and just like get outside of yourself, talk to your neighbor. It's just because if I stay inside my head for too long, then I'm going to want to drown those thoughts out and they're going to, they're going to become negative and they're going to get worse and worse if I just let it, you know, let my disease keep talking to me. And, and Stephanie, I'm going to interject for a second. I'm talking to you guys right now that are saying, oh, okay, wait a second. I feel like I'm going to drink and, and just go volunteer to homeless shelter. It's that simple. Well, that's a huge value bomb right there that Stephanie just dropped on you guys because it kind of is that simple. But I also encourage you when you do get in that situation to go volunteer to homeless shelter. I bet you won't do it. And then think about what the result is. There have been times where I've just like pushed a lot of carts back in the parking lot you know, to the front. Because once I get in my own head, man, (laughs) it can be a fun spot, but it can also be a pretty shitty, gloomy spot to be. But once I'm helping other people, hmm, I feel a hell of a lot better. And Stephanie, before we reach the rapid fire round, I got one last question for you. Walk us through a day in your life. After five years of sobriety, how are you staying sober right now? Well, usually um, I wake up and do my, I I get a Meditate, or it's a reading from Hazelden, the Betty Porter Hazelden Foundation. They'll, I, I read that in like a 24 hour, 24 hours a day, I think is what the book is from. I read that, and I also have, let me see what the actual, I have an app called My Spiritual Toolkit, but I don't know, let me see the other one. The other actual things that I use, I just have the page on my phone, and it's from silkworth.net, but it's got like a prayer for each step. And I literally will like read through those prayers just to keep it that simple. And sometimes I'll have my own prayers, but aside from that, and I and then I'll take some quiet time. I guess some people would call like their meditation time. I tried the whole let me try meditating. I'm not very good at that because I'm too squirrely brain, but it's not impossible. So I just and some people would probably think, oh my gosh, she takes forever to get ready. But it's mostly like the first little bit of my day is just devoted to not jumping into my day so i just have to have that time and then after i do the prayer and quiet time or meditation time i usually i like to now i don't go in until 10 o'clock so 10 to 6 30 so i like to go for a run if i can and then you know go into work and then i've tried to make myself sit still sometimes during my day and just do nothing for at least three or four minutes if i get all caught up in something crazy if it gets crazy at work or whatever I just have to remind myself to breathe and you know I may or may not go to a meeting that day you know it just depends on what's going on but and also if I get caught up in myself or or something goes crazy at work or you know I get you know if it's just a hard day or something Mm -hmm. then I'll definitely call my spot we talk we don't talk every single night but we do talk every single week several times so and but at the end of the day I always do a tenth step which is just you know the people out there that listening don't know what that is. It's basically just looking at my day and where was I resentful, where was I selfish, dishonest, fearful. Did I owe anybody an apology or have I kept anything for myself? And was I kind and loving to everyone and have I thought about myself 
or have I thought about others and what could I have done better for the day? Because when I wasn't doing that six months ago, I realized that I was just like, I mean, I had to go back and do another fourth step and relook at things because I got so caught up in, in stuff and I didn't realize things were building up. But now as I look at my day each day, I'm, I know, okay, what can I do better to make this day better tomorrow? Or at least try to pray about doing that thing or those things better. So it, that's been helpful. And I do try to get a lot of sleep. I used to not really care about sleep. But now I like to have my eight hours of sleep. I like to have my exercise and I need my prayer and meditation time. Yeah, it sounds like you're hitting the physical, the mental, and the spiritual part of the disease called alcoholism. And Stephanie, we have reached the rapid fire round. If you could answer these questions within 30 to 60 seconds, are you ready? I think so. That's a yes to me. Here we go. Number one, what was your worst memory from drinking? Mm, the pancreatitis episode. That was pretty horrible. And Stephanie, what's your plan in sobriety moving forward? To not stay stagnant, to try to change and grow, and to try to help others as much as possible. Nice. And five years of sobriety, I heard you mention some really cool resources, but what's your favorite resource in recovery? Well, the big book, and then I do like, well, my favorite, I guess, the big book, but as far as an app type resource, I like that Silk Words or My Spiritual Toolkit. Nice. That's a lot. And you said one. <laughs> yeah, it's a hard question. I, I have no idea how I'd answer that question. The <laughs> next one, I'll couple this into two. In regards to sobriety, what's the best advice you've ever received? And then also, what advice can you give to someone who's thinking about getting sober? The best advice I've ever received in sobriety is probably uh, continue. The word continue is all throughout the big book. If you don't make a continuous effort to keep putting one foot in front of the other and do this and actually put some action and work into it, I feel like it just it can work and it can do miraculous things if you continue to do the things you should do with it. Now, on the flip side, what advice do you have to somebody who's thinking about getting sober or and staying sober? I would just advise them to, to do it, to definitely, if it's a treatment-related thing, to, to definitely seek treatment. Um, if they can't or, or, or do not want to go to treatment, then I suggest to stay away from old friends that they think are their friends and to reach out to as many positive people that don't drink and use as they can. Ask for help. That's a big deal. Just ask for help and know that you don't have to be alone. Those are three big ones right there. And Stephanie, before we depart, give listeners your own customized You Might Be an Alcoholic if line. Mm, you might be an alcoholic if you are waking up, drinking vodka at 6 a.m. <laughs> and hiding the bottles all throughout your room. <laughs> awesome. And it's definitely a, the, the half pint size because then you're going to go to the, the next high half pint size again. So, yep. Yeah. All the above. <laughs> Stephanie, thank you so much for joining us. I love it. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I got something fun to share with you guys. Recovery Elevator, we got a new website. And after doing nearly 100 podcasts and we got about 30 blog posts, there's some cool resources there. Go check out the new website, recoveryelevator.com. Also, if you find the website and podcast helpful, do your shopping at Amazon through the link recoveryelevator.com forward slash Amazon. Christmas time is coming. Do us a solid. All you got to do is buy it. Amazon does the rest. In the previous podcast episode, I talk about how I got dumped and how that's progress for me. Well, I'm starting to think that's not progress because my stomach still hurts. I guess my heart still hurts. Not so much like heartburn where I need to take Tums. I feel an achy, lonely heart. 
And I say this as progress because I stuck this relationship out. In previous relationships, I would have exited at the first sign of me getting hurt or the first sign that I knew or didn't think it was going to work out. But I'm putting myself in situations, putting myself out there to experience things that are greater than myself. I'm putting my selfishness aside, and this is something I would like to explore. However, my heart still hurts. It's been like a week. How long does this pain have to go for? Criminy. In early sobriety, it was easy to put things into perspective. I would tell myself, Paul, none of this BS matters unless you drink. I went about 10 days wanting to cry every time I heard Coldplay. And then I remembered, dude, Paul, this is not that big of a deal unless we drink. Sure, my stomach physically still hurts. I'm fearful that I will be alone my entire life. And if that's the case, that's fine. That's what's meant to be. I will find a way to be happy in whatever environment I am presented with. My higher power, whatever it is, that's what it has in store for me. But the point is I made progress. And if I keep putting myself out there, something good might come of it. But if not, Coldplay's coming out with another album, and that should kick ass too. Looking back, I don't think I've ever been dumped. And this might seem like a strange, unusual goal, but I think it's my new goal to be dumped in every relationship I'm in. Therefore, I am sticking it out. I'm going to be present in the moment till the very end. Usually, I hope the end goal is not getting dumped via text message while sitting on a roof, but you get the point. So recovery elevator, we took the elevator down, we gotta take the stairs back up, we can do this.